Alright, uh, good morning again and God be praised for life, blessing, comfort, even more eternal comfort in Christ, because of Christ, that everything said and done, it is well with us in spite of our sins, many sins that we've committed are committing and shall commit. And yet God says, I shall remember their sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far if I cast their sins away from them. The east and the west don't ever meet. The east keeps going east and the west keeps going west. And so God has cast our sins from us, never to be condemned of them ever again. So praise be to God for that. And good morning to everyone who is just joining us, praying that you are well and the Lord will bless you with the message that is given me to share from First Samuel 17. So many gospel nuggets to glean. I'm going to recommend for people to go and listen to these messages. Because I am not giving them the way some people preach. There's a lot of weaving, a lot of scripture, a lot of theological understanding and connections. So you cannot absorb this in one sitting. But I have to connect it in one sitting. And with that, let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon his word. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this morning as your people. We pray, Lord, that you speak to us through the word of Christ by your Holy Spirit. Give us those things that are needful for us to hear. The food from heaven that will make us wise unto salvation. I thank you for giving me strength and wisdom to speak. And Lord, speak and cause your people to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we are back to First Samuel 17. And we begin from verse 28. And we're going to read as far as verse 29. <laughs> the text says, And Eliab, his eldest brother, had when he spake unto the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? The word of the Lord. 
Someone title is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? And number two title, the condescension of Christ in David, the condescension of Christ in David, and that's going to be part one. So many things to say, and may the Lord help me and you to understand the biblical and spiritual understanding of the person and work of Christ that has been and is still hidden from the wise and the prudent, but has been revealed to the babes. In the suckling, the truth of God has been hidden from the wise and the prudent, but has been revealed to the babes. The creation is Christ's story. Everything that has happened in the creation is testimony of Christ. And the Bible is his story. The Old Testament has Christ running in its veins. The DNA of the Old Testament is Christ, but in shadows. And now that we know about the light and substance of whom the Old Testament scriptures bore witness, it is much easier by the help of the Holy Spirit to see Christ in those shadows, in those types and shadows. And where there's Christ, there's also an accompanying testimony or allied doctrines that relate to the matter of salvation. So once you find Christ, the person of Christ, either in the person of a human being or in an institution, both Christ was not only depicted in human being forms, but also the institutions of the Old Testament were types of Christ. So once you find the type of Christ that becomes the organizing principle on how to read everything around it. So if you don't find Christ, you cannot understand the text. And where there's Christ? Uh, I was going to repeat the statement that I already said, but we don't need to repeat that. But this is my point. All issues that relate to the gospel are found hidden in the persons, in the institutions, in the stories that God used to write the gospel script. As Jonah was found by the mariners hidden below the deck of the ship, this, for the testimony of Christ, Christ being the one who was depicted in the person of Jonah. 
who had gone down into the hold below deck and had lain down, right, unknown to the mariners, and was sound asleep. And it was only to be known, Jonah was only to be known by a self-disclosure of himself in the context of a storm that could not be made calm, that it arisen because of Jonah, and that is in the context of salvation of the mariners who were Gentiles. So Jonah is sleeping in the deck of the ship. Jonah did not have sleeping problem issues. <laughs> it is God preaching. So we see in the New Testament the fulfillment of that with the Lord Jesus Christ even hidden to his own disciples and yet Sleeping in the ship. Matthew 8, 23-27. We have a lot of things to say today. Lord have mercy. I thought I was going to cover 15 verses. No, we're going to be stuck in just one verse. <laughs> From First Samuel 17. Eight, Matthew 8, 23-27. Matthew says, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. <laughs> sound asleep, just as Jonah was sound asleep before him. The sign of Jonah. Verse 25, then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. That sounds like a true gospel statement. Not, Lord, I'm keeping the law, or I'm repenting, or I'm doing good works. No, Lord, save us, for I am perishing. That's the true gospel testament. Right there, we are done with our message for today. <laughs> Lord Jesus, save me because I'm perishing. So the mariners with Jonah also went and awoke him and said, Man, we are perishing. What do you know about this storm? What do you know? Verse 26, still in Matthew 8. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, all you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so we see Jonah raised and thrown into the sea, and also there was a great calm. And the Christ rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The Jonah who was hidden in the deck of the ship. He's thrown overboard and there's calm to the mariners. The Christ who is sleeping in the boat, he rebukes the wind and there's calm. 
what is rebuked by Christ is not the waves. The condemnation that is on his people as is shown by the raging winds and storms of the sea that's the picture of God's wrath that Christ alone has power to rebuke as it were and bring calm to those who are perishing. That's gospel. Verse 28, verse 27 still Matthew 8 So the men marveled saying who can this be? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Who can this be for Jonah? Because I'm sure the mariners were wondering too. What kind of man is this that when we have thrown him overboard, the sea and the winds obey him? We've never seen such a man. Who can this be? Who can this be for Christ Jesus? And that you say, the Christ in the Old Testament is like a Jonah asleep. He is hidden. And to be disclosed in the New Testament in the context of the calming down of the storm of God's condemnation on his people. That's how Christ is revealed. Let me speak a little bit more on Jonah and Christ. But we have full messages on this. So if you want, you can go and look in our archives. You're going to find the messages that I did on Jonah. But let's speak for today for the benefit of those who have not had Christ and Jonah, the connections, that's how you preach the gospel, that's how you preach the old and the new, you always tie them together. The mariners would have this to ask of Jonah in the matter of the revelation of his person. They said to him, they went to Jonah and said to him, tell us, Whose fault is it that this disaster has overtaken us? Whose fault is it? And there are very few preachers who can answer that question to God's glory. In other words, for whose cause has sin, death, and condemnation overtaken us? For whose cause? Was it because of just our natural unbelief and stubbornness as human beings? Or was it because that is what God purposed to be for the sake of his glory? God is he who started this very matter. It is not man. The storm has come upon the mariners on account of Jonah. So sin, death, and condemnation has come upon men on account of Christ. Cause and effect is very important. If your cause and effect is wrong, you're going to have a conditional salvation. You're going to make it about yourself. 
as the mariners initially tried to calm the storms by their own rowing of the ship to try and get to the shore, but they could not. The more they tried, the harder it got. So this disaster, this matter of salvation has come upon us because of the glory of Christ. He must be glorified. The grace of God must be glorified. As Romans 9 says, Romans 9, 22 to 24, what if God wanting to show his wrath, wanted to display his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God wanting to make something known about himself, about his wrath, in the storms. Wanting to display something about himself, prepared beforehand, vessels to destroy. And thank God it doesn't end in verse 22. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. The vessels of mercy were prepared when when they repented and chose Jesus, when they came to faith. No, they were prepared beforehand for glory. Vessels of mercy from before the foundation of the world. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So only the vessels of mercy are called to the gospel. They are the ones who make sense of the gospel. Granted to you from before the foundation of the world. So sin, death, and combination, they always come together. Came and the salvation from them for the purpose of God making known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy to say, look at me, how gracious I am. I've been to Paul, to James. Look at me. I'm glorious. I'm so, I'm beautiful. <laughs> that is why God saved you. People say, ah, I just don't know why God saved me. No, you know, you just are in unbelief. God saved you because he wants to show the denizens of heaven that this is what he does, that he's merciful to some people. And those that are not saved, it is again that God may make known his wrath to vessels of dishonor. And that is sovereign grace gospel. But here the question of the mariners to Jonah. We are developing some background. Jonah 1 verse 8. Here the question of the mariners to Jonah. Jonah 1 verse 8 and 9. What's your occupation? (laughs) What do you do for a living? Where do you come from? What is your address. What's your country? Show us your passport. And who are your people? 
who are the people that you identify with? And in response, Jonah said, verse 9, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And guess what? The mariners were so afraid. <laughs> they were so afraid. And that is the self-disclosure of Christ in the person of Jonah to the mariners. He is telling them of his identity. That is what Christ came and did. He disclosed himself to his people. His occupation to serve his people from their sin. Where did he come from? He came from heaven. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Christ Jesus. So Christ must introduce himself to sinners for them to know his identity. He is going in and out. Only that in the context of calming the storm. And that means the removal of God's wrath from his people, the propitiation of their sins. And that to say God cannot be known apart from the person of Christ and apart from the cross. Those are the two defining things of knowing God. The person of Christ and the cross. Again, it is frustrating to some preachers and some people when they go in the Old Testament and they can't make out things about Jesus. Because they want the New Testament to explain every text that is in the Old Testament. If that would happen, guess what? We'd have more than a library that you could never be able to read. Even John, the book of John said, the things that Jesus did were so numerous that if books were written, the whole world could not contain. Now imagine trying to explain everything from the Old Testament and exegeting every line and connecting to Christ. The books will just be, you won't even, you can't even read the Bible as is. <laughs> but hear this. Once God gives you the key, the key that opens and shuts all doors, that is Christ. You can go into the darkest of places that seem to be very parched ground, that seem to be dry, that seem to have no gospel in them, and still see the light of Christ. Go to some of these stories that have people offended and still pull Christ from that offense. The more the story offends people, most likely there's an offense of Christ in it. That's why it's offensive. And so keeping that theological framework of the relations between the old and the new, between type and anti-type, and the type is the fulfillment of the shadow or the type. Between shadow and substance. In the previous message, we talked about the encounter of Israel and the Philistines in a battle. And we had beautiful testimony from the pulpit of Goliath. 
I would want to be a co-preacher with Goliath. I would love to have a Sovereign Grace Conference with Goliath as my preacher. Goliath had a beautiful pulpit with no smoke machines, <laughs> no strobe lights. He declared clearly and simply God's way of salvation by way of representation and union with the one man with his people. Union and representation with the one man an able man, a man able to fight. A fit man, not a measly looking man, a righteous man, a man of war, a prudent man to come down. To come down and fight with him and kill him. And once for all time decide the matter between Israel and the Philistines by death. Whatever issues the Philistines and Israel have can only be satisfied, resolved, reconciled in the fight of the one man representing both camps. And the fight to the death. And that is to say, the matter of salvation was 100% decided by the death of the one man who stood for all the people. And it is such simplicity of the gospel that unfortunately, even professing sovereign grace preachers are failing to teach. Which, again, is the sufficiency of the one man, the man Christ Jesus, and his finished redemption. And people would come and say, well, Katie, can you tell us why you think you're saved? And generally what they are saying or asking of you is to give them two pages of how your life used to be. And now it has become this. I used to do this. I used to hang out with the girls who chewed and smoked and drank. I don't do that anymore. I, I read my Bible more. I don't sin as much. And that's the majority of the testimony. And that's false testimony. Goliath does not accept such testimony in the resolution of the issues of salvation that stand between you and God. The answer to why Katie is saved is the one man who stood for her. That's all. It was my one man. Christ Jesus stood for me. He went into the ring and he fought and he won. That's why I'm saved. It's that simple. All these other things are relative they are relative. They do not cause the resolution of your issues with God. So in the book of Hebrews 10.14, you should know this by heart now, for by one offering he has perfected for all time, one offering for all time, those who are the sanctified may have been perfected 
And to be perfected for all time is to be justified for all time. Justified from all these things that were upon you. So the matter of salvation was decided in the person of Christ and his death. That's the event that makes the distinction, that make, that brings the break between the old stuff of sin, death, and condemnation and the new creation of your justification before God. So Jesus did not die to build an Amazon warehouse of salvation whereby the Holy Spirit would then come and do some order fulfillment through prayer, through faith and repentance, and then only give you the righteousness of Christ, and then only for God to say, oh, Sean is now justified in response to the gospel. In the language of application of redemption, that's what they say. They say, well, you're justified only at faith because that's when your redemption is applied. What does that mean anyway? Because it is behind this language that the total justification that Christ accomplished on the cross is denied. And thus the cross is made of no effect. Once you build an Amazon warehouse and you're not saying Jesus did not build an Amazon warehouse, he actually justified me. He's not waiting with a big warehouse full of righteousness to give it to you. It's already been transacted in the representative man. So righteousness is not imputed because of faith or at faith. But in the representative person, Christ Jesus, because he represented us in the one transaction by the one man, as the one man whom Goliath named the one man dying and justifying his people at his death. In other words, once the death of Christ has happened, the sin has been paid, forgiveness automatically follows, and thus God's people sentence of condemnation is removed. Because to be in sin means to owe something to God. So what you owed, God required payment from Christ. So when Christ has made the payment, you have been justified from that debt. You have been set free from that debt. You have been forgiven of that debt. So it happens when the payment is made. But the cross is where Jesus is writing the check. He is putting value in the check that he signed with his own blood. And God is cashing that check on your behalf. So the death of Christ 
was the justification of all his elect who were in union with him. And thus, condemnation cannot continue to follow the elect past the cross. Okay? Waiting for the Holy Spirit to remove it in application. The Holy Spirit does not remove condemnation. It is the blood that removes condemnation. I do not agree with the kind of theological thinking around this matter of justification away from the cross itself. Because if a person is not justified at the cross, they cannot be justified anywhere. Both the payment was made at the cross. So the matter of salvation is in the one man, in the one fight on Calvary, in the one death, one spirit, one baptism, one court session, one acquittal, one justification. We've done a message on Zechariah chapter 3, in which Joshua the high priest, representing all the people of Israel, comes before God in a court session. And he has on filthy garments that the angel of the Lord commanded to be removed from him and have him new garments. The devil was in there in the court session Accusing Joshua, we have done two messages on this. And Joshua is justified. Joshua is Christ. The high priest represents all his people. He represents all of Israel. And once Christ carries condemnation, he is carrying the condemnation of all his people. And once he has made the payment, and is justified from that. Guess what? Immediately all his people are also justified. Zechariah chapter 3. Go and read it. So the resurrection of Christ. Was testimony. Of the end of the court session. Of the court proceedings. Of our salvation. Because the matter of salvation is a legal matter. Because of sin, once you steal something, guess where the thing is going to be settled? You're going to have to go to court. <laughs> right? You steal, you murder, you, whatever you do that is sinful, crime, it's going to be a matter that has to be settled in the court. So, the resurrection of Christ is testimony to the end of the deliberations of the court session deliberating about your salvation. And God is saying what? That Christ has finished his intercession for transgressors as their mediator, as their advocate. Even in death, he was interceding for the transgressors as their advocate also. And thus was raised because of our justification. He was raised because 
of our justification, the court session ended with victory and declaration of our right standing before God. So God is no is not holding any more court proceedings to determine, to justify the elect every time a person comes to Christ. He is not holding a court session by reason of the one man. Everything is decided in the one man. Once the one man is done, then it's done forever. Okay? And so this one representative, one representative man who would take the fight to Goliath and kill him would have three things done to him. He is not fighting for free on his part. He has skin in the game. <laughs> Christ has skin in the game. The text of First Samuel 17, 25 said, and the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king, will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Three perfect things would happen to Christ. See that there are three things given to happen to this man in the immediate aftermath of his victory on the cross. He'll be enriched with great riches, which means glorified by God, which thing happened to Christ. He would get the daughter of the king, not just any other daughter, which means the church, the king, has a daughter. The church is seen by God as one entity, as one corporate body, one church, bride of Christ. That's the daughter of the king given to Christ on account of his victory. And also would set free his father's house. The father's house is the church. And it will be set free immediately in the aftermath of the death of Christ, will be justified from all their sins because he had made complete satisfaction for sin. And the stature of Goliath, that fearsome stature of Goliath, was representing the condemnation that has come upon God's people. The whole portrayal of Goliath, his fearsomeness, is speaking to how fearful or fearsome sin is or should be to us once we have understood whom we are dealing with. That we cannot just go and wish away sin. You can't wish away condemnation. Something has to happen. A transaction has to happen. A God-appointed transaction has to happen. And so this gospel drama continued to unfold in the conversation between David, his brothers, and Saul, the king of Israel at this time, and even Goliath. And that to say, 
we are in verse 28 of first Samuel 17 and all that I said was introduction. <laughs> verse 28. And, it, and Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the man and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Eliab is or was the eldest brother of David, the oldest of the eight boys. He sees David and was not amused. And he had to do some scolding of him because his anger was kindled against David. Just from hearing what David was proposing to do, even just seeing him show up, just his presence was enough to irritate the oldest brother. And say, what are you doing here? So Eliab had what David had said about going to take on Goliath by himself. And he's thinking, oh, please, kid, what is wrong with you? Go back home and play with your Legos. <laughs> but who is Eliab? And why is he scolding David? Remember, this is gospel. This is not just some sibling drama or rivalry. There's more behind it. Let's go back to First Samuel 16 for more instruction. First Samuel 16. Listen carefully. Follow my arguments and you see what God is teaching. First Samuel 16, we begin at verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go and I'll send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. I have provided me a king. So Saul has been rejected as king of Israel because he had not listened to an instruction that God had given him in First Samuel 15, verse 9 to 11, to slaughter all the Amalekites. Let's go there and want to show you all these pieces and we join them together. First Samuel 15, verse 9, I'll read. However, Saul and the army spared Agag along with the best of the flock, the cattle, the fetlings, and the lambs, as well as everything else that was of value. They were not willing to slaughter them but they did slaughter everything that was despised and worthless. And so Saul did not follow the instruction. God said, go and destroy, annihilate the Amalekites with everything that they have. Don't spare a single thing. Don't take anything from them. 
And for this reason, God fired him from his job. But he will remain king for a while. While this drama unfolds. Because God is still working more gospel testimony. God still has more gospel nuggets for us to glean before Saul is removed from power. So with that quick background of the firing of Saul, God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, Fill thine horn with oil and go, I'll send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided me a king among his sons. God has his own king who must succeed Saul, a king that comes from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul has been rejected. He cannot reign over Israel, God's people. But a new king shall be appointed and anointed from the sons of Jesse. And this king shall be anointed with oil and a lot of oil. And God said, Samuel, fill your horn with oil, with the oil of gladness to the full for my king. Samuel must bring his horn full of oil to anoint David later. David, the man after God's own heart, and that is in reference to Christ Jesus. But pay attention. The horn of oil must be filled to the brim in the context of David. That is, the fullness of the Holy Spirit must be upon David. And that looking to Christ. But here the contrast here. When Saul was anointed to be king of Israel, this is what the text said happened. Let's go to 1 Samuel 10. We're backtracking all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel 10. Beginning at verse 1. Then Samuel took a small container of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head. Samuel kissed him and said, The Lord has chosen you to lead his people, Israel. You rule over the lost people and you deliver them from the power of the enemies who surround them. This will be your sign that the Lord has chosen you as leader over his inheritance. Small container of oil for the anointing of Saul as king. And no one was there when Saul was anointed to be king of Israel. Unlike when David was anointed. There's much to say around this. I'm just introducing gospel nuggets. But cutting things out so that I can continue developing our message. But I want you to see that the king who is anointed with a small container of oil and yet is rejected is the law. If you recall, Saul was a very tall and handsome man and people were excited to have him for their king 
And yet he was rejected as king over God's people. This handsome man used and abused God's people and left them with nothing. And that's God's testimony. That's what God said would happen if Saul was made king. He would abuse the people, take stuff from them. And yet, he was tall and handsome. And people would have his pictures on their Facebook profile. Here is my king, Saul. He's handsome. (laughs) And that is to say, why would God tell us that Saul was tall and handsome, and yet ruthless. But the law is good. It's holy, it's righteous, and yet bears fruit unto death. The law kills. It kills those who claim to be under its rulership. And it abuses them because it condemns them for their unrighteousness. And yet, Saul is rejected to be the ruler of God's people by God himself. And that is to say the law is not the believer's rule of life because David, standing for Christ, is the Lord's anointed to be the king of God's people. There has to be a succession because there's a succession of the covenants. One has to be passing Away because it did not make anything perfect. So it has to be succeeded by David. It has to be succeeded by Christ. Let's continue with First Samuel 16. And someone said, how can I go if Saul hear me, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with thee and say, I come, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Jesse, the father of David, must also come. And that to say, God the Father also is present in the anointing of the Lord Jesus in his ministry to serve his people. So the process of looking for a successor to Saul has begun the matter of who shall succeed the law to rule God's people has begun. That's the issue. The law has to be succeeded by something better, a better high priest, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifice. And this has to be decided over the matter of sacrifice. That's what the instruction said from God. Verse 4 of Samuel 16, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. So Jesse and his sons are in town and the boys are all looking all turned up and cute. Yeah? 
It took a shower. <laughs> Verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Remember we are developing the person and theology of Eliab and why he was offended at David. So Eliab, the eldest of the boys, shows up and Samuel is immediately impressed. Eliab is what? He is super fly. Verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, not so fast. <laughs> Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So Samuel has been impressed by Eliab's countenance and the height of his stature, and he thought this must be the guy fit to take over from Saul. Problem is, Eliab was of the same stature as Saul before him. Both were tall and handsome, and thus represented the same testimony of the law. And God said, nope, the law shall not be the one to reign over my people, shall not be the one to save my people from the Philistines. Because the person that God is looking for is the one who shall deliver his people from the Philistines. That's the conversation. I have revealed him. But the law cannot deliver you from the Philistines. So in the biblical gospel testimony or narrative, it is not surprising then that Eliab would be the one to have issues with David, the youngest brother. If you recall very well, what did Israel use to try and discredit the testimony of the Lord Jesus? Was it not the law? They used the law to discredit, to dismiss the Lord Jesus. So Eliab has a dual testimony of being a picture of the law, but rejected, but also as one who comes with a condescending attitude towards David in the picture of Israel's rejection of Christ. Because Israel here in the testament of Eliab are doing what? They are rejecting David. They are rejecting Christ. When Jesus showed up and said, well, if you believe in me, you shall not come unto death. They're like, what are you talking about? What are you able to do? You can't overthrow the Romans for us. <laughs> John 1 verse 10 and 11, John says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. His own rejected him. This man, this Christ Jesus, the man after God's own heart, was in the world he came to fight Goliath for them, for his people, to remove their sin and condemnation, and yet they did not receive him. 
Hear this again, First Samuel 17, verse 28b. First Samuel 17. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? Goliath has asked for the one man to come down that he may fight. Don't miss that in the conversation. Goliath demanded that a man be sent his way and come down to him. And Eliab, the brother of David, says to the one man after he had come, what have you come down here to do? In other words, why the incarnation? Or what necessitated the incarnation of Christ? The coming down of Christ in the flesh. Why the humiliation of Christ? Why the condescension of Christ? Why did Jesus humble himself to become a man and a servant and the suffering of death. Why comest thou down hither? That's what the question is asking. That's Philippians 2. In the gospel context, that is a question that is addressed to Christ. Not that he did not know why he came but so that God would give understanding of why he came. In the general understanding of condescension. I got this from William Webster. He defines it two ways. Number one, a patronizing attitude or behavior. And that is what Eliab was doing towards David. And Israel was doing to Christ. They're like, you are Joseph's son, man. You're just a carpenter. You're born of a harlot. Oh, you're full of demons. That was their attitude towards Christ. But in respect of Christ Jesus, in the incarnation, when we talk about the condescension of Christ, Definition number two by William Webster, which I thought was appropriate in the context of Philippians 2, was a voluntary descent coming down from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. A voluntary descent, which means it was not forced him to come from heaven in his dignity, to be at the same level as us and become a servant. That's, that was voluntary. That's the condescension of Christ. So Christ voluntarily veiled his glory as God and came down to earth to live among mortals, sinners even, and that for a purpose, which was captured in the questioning of David by his eldest brother. And when we talk about Christ veiling, because people say, or oh, Christ 
set aside his privileges as God. Kind, kind, oh, the Greek word is, is missing me. It's right there in my head. Some people claim that for the moment that Jesus was in Palestine, he ceased to be God. That's not true. You can never cease to be God. <laughs> because God is immutable. He's unchangeable. All he did was he just veiled that glory so that none would be able to see it. But he did unveil it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard it, but he was hidden. He was still God. He was still holding the breath of everyone. <laughs> yeah? But this is the conversation that David and his elders brothers brother are having. Hear this. Eliab is saying to David and to Christ, define your mission. Why are you here? Are you on vacation? Yeah? Have you come to enjoy the sand beaches in the Middle East? Do you think Jesus actually came for that? And the Lord gladly answered the question in John 3.17 and said, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ did not come to condemn. You see, Jesus said God did not send his son into the world. So David was sent by Jesse to go to the battlefield. He was sent by his father to go to the battlefield. Christ, the son of David, was sent by the father to the world, the place of the battle. To do what? Not to condemn, because the world was already condemned in Adam. The world was already dealing with Goliath. So David came not to condemn his brothers. He even brought food for them from the Father and to set a people free who were laboring under the fear of Goliath and servitude to the Philistines. He came, he brought them food, bread from heaven, yeah, from the Father. He came to save them. That through him might be saved. Matthew 20, verse 20. The Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to save and to give his life as ransom for many. So the Son of Man defines what he came to do, to give his life as ransom. This is a quotation from Matthew 5. I don't remember the verse now, but Matthew says, or Christ says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So the Christ must come on a particular mission, well-defined mission, 
he is very aware of every detail of what has to happen in this mission. A God-defined mission to fulfill the law by way of his obedience and death. And once he speaks of ransom, giving his life as a ransom, he's speaking of death. That's Goliath theology. That is gospel preaching, defining the mission of Christ and saying whether he accomplished that mission or not. Thankfully, Jesus believed that he accomplished all that the Father gave him to do. He said it is finished. It is finished. Father, I finished all the work that he gave me to do. Now glorify me with yourself, with the glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. And this is the area that you're going to find a lot of gimmicks, a lot of hula hoping, a lot of gymnastics. If you, with understanding, listen carefully to what people are saying or not saying about Jesus, you have to begin to listen carefully to what is being said when preachers are talking about Jesus. The Christ came to serve his people, and that means to justify his people, to redeem his people by being the ransom for them, to stand in their place, to be taken in their place as he was taken for Barabbas. By being the price for their freedom, Christ became the price for the freedom of Barabbas who was in prison. And Barabbas was sent home that very day, that very time that Christ was taken in his place. Barabbas justified from all his sins. All of God's people justified from their sins. That's the only way you can go home. Okay. So the freedom of salvation is freedom from condemnation from your sin. And that means justification from the sins that you are now living and God knew every one of them because he decreed them. All your sins were decreed by him to the level, to the degree that you're going to do them. He has set boundaries on some sins that you never commit. Some people will never do some things. Others will do them. But we are all sinners. But if boundaries... They're just some things that you're not going to do. It's not because you're such a wise person, but because God has just built boundaries. He did not give you, give you the test to do it. Okay? And that's why verse 25 of 1 Samuel 17, we are told his father's house shall be free in Israel, free from the law, free from the curse of the law, free from condemnation, and if you are free from all that, it means you are justified. But many people are not wanting to say Jesus justified his people on the cross who resort to saying things like Christ secures salvation for his people. And that is true. But there is some freight 
or baggage that is hidden under that phraseology. Why are they afraid to unpack it? They have to unpack it. Why are they afraid to say Jesus justified his people when he died? What are they protecting? What is so offensive for anyone who claims Christ to say Jesus justified his people? They're protecting their theological systems. That's all they do. They're protecting their theological systems at the expense of Christ's accomplishments because they don't want to repent from their theological systems. Because it is taboo, it is anathema for them to declare that Jesus justified his people from their sins and that is a matter that is making me sad. To be honest, it does make me sad that a gospel preacher cannot stand and say Jesus justified his people. What are you preaching then? But God is not mocked. Yeah. How did he secure salvation if he did not justify them? I don't know. But here, Eliab again to David, going back to First Samuel 17, 28, and with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? Another very important question being asked of David, but in an insulting, demeaning way to say, David, you're nothing. So much that you only have a few sheep that you have also, due to your carelessness, left in the wilderness, left them to themselves, left them to their devices to be eaten, devoured by the wild beasts. But do not miss what is being said. There's the shepherd. There's the sheep. And there's the wilderness. That is the biblical gospel narrative. Is the sheep, wilderness, and the shepherd. And so when the shepherd comes, in Luke 15, verse 4, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, in the wilderness, the one ship, the few, just the one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So the sheep are in the wilderness. They're lost in sin and yet are kept in their Wandering in the wilderness. After David got instruction from his father Jesse to go check on his brethren and to bring them supplies of salvation. David said, here's some cheeses, here's some bread, bring them to thy brethren. This is what we are told about the ship. The sheep are going to feature a lot in this conversation in First Samuel 17. Here, this is First Samuel 17 20. And David rose up early in the morning 
and left the ship with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. <laughs> David rose up early in the morning. He woke up early in the morning. Christ rose up early in the morning. Left the ship with the keeper. The resurrection of Christ is already in there. People say, oh, there's no resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. Because they're waiting for it to be said. Oh, and then David resurrected from the dead. It's right there. He rose up early in the morning. But left the ship with the keeper. David left the ship with the keeper. And that to say the elect have always been sovereignly kept by God. Even in the wilderness of their sin. We were and are kept. In our ignorance, we are kept. Because Christ will not lose any of his ship. Christ came and looked for the man who had the legion of demons. The demoniac. He was in the wilderness by himself, by the graveyard. Cutting himself with stones of the law. Because that's what the Lord does. You cut yourself with the, with the stones, naked with no righteousness. That's what religion does to you. Leaves you in the graveyard, cutting yourself with the law, thinking that you are being righteous, and yet remain naked and going crazy. But Christ came. For him, he knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly, and he came just for him, for the one ship, and he recovered him. And yet he was being kept, but Christ may come. And when Christ healed the man, restored him to his right mind, the man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, go back to your village and tell them what God has done for you. That's gospel preaching. It's a declaration of what God has done for you, not who will do for you. What God has done for you. What has God done for you? He has clothed you, the demoniac, with the righteousness of Christ. The demoniac was naked. He was naked. But when Christ healed him, he left him clothed with the righteousness. Justified him. And now go and preach what God has done for you. What has God done? He has clothed me in his righteousness. He has restored my mind. He has stopped me from cutting myself with the stones of the law, the Ten Commandments, thinking that I'm doing righteousness. <laughs> so even Christ, the good Samaritan, came and saved the man who had been beaten down on the road to Jericho and left for dead beaten by the robbers, and was left what? Naked. He was left with nothing, left naked, left for dead. And that's the spiritual condition of all men who cannot be helped by the law. The law came in the testimony of the Levite and the priest, and they could not help a man. The law cannot help a sinner. The law is not the believer's rule of life. So hear this, 
in the testimony of the Good Samaritan about the keeping of the sheep. Luke 10, 35. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pens and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will pay thee. So the man who had been beaten was carried by the Good Samaritan to the inn, was dressed, dressed by the Good Samaritan because he could not show up in the hotel with a naked guy, <laughs> which means he has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Christ is the good Samaritan. And he says to the innkeeper, who is the Holy Spirit, you take care of this guy on my account. And if there's anything else that he causes, any bills pertaining to his salvation and his keeping in this inn, put them to my charge to say salvation is 100% of grace, 100% of Christ. But Christ does not, even when he goes back to the Father, he doesn't leave you. He says, I'll send another comforter. The Holy Spirit is the innkeeper of the New Testament. He keeps those who were beaten and who are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ in the New Covenant, not in the Old. Okay? So the Holy Spirit has been entrusted with the care of the ship. That's why we are told that and left the ship with the keeper. That's what David did. He left the ship with the keeper. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. But Eliab made a mocking reference to David having a few ship. The few ship in the wilderness could be speaking to the reality that God is a people. The remnant chosen by grace. The matter of remnant is a very pervasive gospel theme, even from the Old Testament. Only a few, a remnant. Even though they are in the wilderness, they are still a remnant of God's people. Even when they are found, when they are found, the remnant are not singing amazing grace. They're just like the rest. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me is what the remnant sing at conversion. <laughs> when they have been brought to the knowledge of their wandering in the wilderness and what Christ did for them to recover them. But Eliab continued still in verse 28. You see why I... When I was working on this message, I'm like, man, I'm almost two hours in with this message. I haven't progressed. So I, have to, I had to go and cut out all the other verses. Let's <laughs> read it again. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. So Eliab does not like David. He says, I know your pride and deceit. You are a prideful and deceitful man. And those are the charges that were being leveled against the Lord Jesus by the Jews. 
his brethren according to the flesh. Even his own brothers were saying the same thing, that if you want to be known by the people, why don't you go and show yourself in Jerusalem and stuff? But Jesus said, no, my time is not yet. Christ made huge claims about himself. There's no way that you can read the words of Jesus and not say, man, this guy is prideful. There's no way. If you don't understand who Jesus is, that's your conclusion. But Jesus says things that leaves you with no option. There's no other viable option as far as Jesus is concerned. It's about him or the highway. Okay. So he made huge claims of being the son of God and having been before Abraham and what? Saying salvation comes down to what you think about me. Not what you do. Just what you think about me. That's the matter of salvation. And so the Jews thought that it to be deception. This was a prideful guy. Arrogant guy. Hear this in John 7, 42 to 48. John 7, 42 to 48. John says, Hath not the scripture said, that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. Do you see the connection? The Christ has to come from the sons of Jesse. So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid on him. But no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man, never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? In other words, have they also been deceived <laughs> by this deceitful man, Christ Jesus? So the chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes included, these are the mediators of the law. Pay attention to that. When you see the chief priests, the scribes, they are mediators of the law. They are the ones who are writing the law. They are the ones who interpret the law. Yeah? They accuse the Lord of being a deceiver for making all these claims about himself. And that testimony was carried by Eliab towards his brother David, who is representing Christ. Remember Jesus, as David was also very young, and so he would have been treated like he was out of his mind as Eliab, his brothers, and Israel treated David. And yet it was David who had the victory for God's people, as Christ is he who had the victory for our salvation. Eliab said, verse 28 still, First Samuel 27, First Samuel 17, For thou art calm down, that thou mightest see the battle. Your deceit and pride 
is in that you have come down to see the battle when you should have stayed at home. Yes, of course. And more than that, David did not come to just be a spectator of the battle, but to accomplish salvation for Israel. And yes, Christ did come down to be more than a spectator of our salvation. He came to cause and to accomplish it. He did not come to sit in the stadium and be expected. Because if that had happened, none would have been saved. You cannot be saved by a David who comes to be a spectator. You cannot be saved by a Christ who comes to be a spectator. He must go in the ring. He has to fight. David is no spectator. And so Christ was no spectator. Verse 29. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Bingo. Was there not a cause that David should leave his father Jesse so that he would come and deliver Israel from the Philistines? Was there not a cause that Christ should leave his father and come to where the battle was to be fought as the one man? Beloved, there was a cause. There was a great cause for the incarnation of Christ. And the Hebrews writer will help us with commentary of the cause. So let's go to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. The Hebrews writer says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, the destruction of death, the destruction of the devil is going to have to happen by him and by death. And release or set free those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, and that is to the elect. Christ does not redeem the sinful angels because he did not take up their nature. The Christ, the sacrifice, has to be of the nature of those that he is redeeming. That is the legal requirement for there to be salvation. So that is the cause for Christ coming down, that he may partook of our nature, but without sin. Therefore, verse 17, in all things, sin accepted, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He had to be made like his brethren. So, they were his brethren 
before he even redeemed them. Because they belonged to the Father. But they were given him to redeem. So he had to be made like his brethren. And this is the reason that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. What are those things that relate to God? For which Christ came as his cause to make propitiation for the sins of the people, of the brethren. So Christ came to the battlefield by way of the incarnation for the purpose of making propitiation for the sins of his brethren to appease. To propitiate means to remove wrath. Right? You are taking away wrath by satisfaction. Wrath is removed to appease by way of removal of wrath. By him dying. And that is justification. <laughs> so in David coming down to the battle and slowing Goliath to death, again, to death, he was slowing not just sin, death and condemnation, but also the devil who was also in the past and also represented by Goliath and it subjected Israel to a lifetime of bondage due to the fear of the Philistines. If you read the text of First Samuel 17, the attitude of Israel or the feeling, general feeling of Israel was not victory. It was all fear. It was all fear. King Saul is afraid. The army of Israel is afraid. The people of Israel are afraid. And David appears and he seems not to be afraid. He was the only one who was not afraid. Christ, the only one who was not afraid. And so, in the coming of David to the battlefield and fighting Goliath, that's the picture of Christ coming to make propitiation to make atonement of the sins of the people, the main reason why those things had power over the people, sin is the main reason. And where there's propitiation of sin, there's justification from the same. Where there's propitiation of sin, there's justification from the same. But then, let's see this. Why did God choose David over his brothers to be his men of all? Hear this. First Samuel 15. Let's go to First Samuel 15. 8 to 13. So Jesse called Abinadab. So that would have been the second son of Jesse and made him pass before Samuel. And then he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there, and there he is keeping the ship. There remains the youngest yet to show up. There were many messiahs who came in Israel professing to be the messiah, and yet the one true messiah had not yet come. Even though he had not yet come, he was still keeping the ship. He must show up in the fullness of time. And guess what he's doing in the meantime? I messed up my point. He was keeping the ship. That's what I wanted to say. So the one man who can take Goliath down has to be a natural sheep header. He has to be a natural shepherd. That's his preoccupation. And someone said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. The son has to be sent down. This is conversation. It is the father who has to send him down to come. So when you read the book of John, Jesus uses a lot of the language of being sent by the Father. He was sent. I was sent. Him who sent me. Send and bring him. For we will not rest till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. So God sent his son. It is he who brought Christ. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Arise and anoint him because he is the one. This is the one. Of the Christ as he was about to start his ministry, we go to the Jordan River and we hear this from Luke 3, verse 21 to 23. Hear the testimony of Christ. When all the people were baptized, Luke 3, 21 to 23, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And John the Baptist said this of Christ in John 1, 32 to 33. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. With King Saul, the Holy Spirit would come and live. With David, the Holy Spirit was with him. With Christ, the Holy Spirit remains on him. The one on whom the Holy Spirit descends and remains on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who baptizes. He is the one who immerses his people in the Holy Spirit. He puts his people in the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit. That is the function of Christ alone. There's no man who does that. So of David, gossip, anoint him. For this is the one of Christ, God said, You are my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. God is pointing and giving testimony of his king in both situations. It's God who said, that's the one, that's David, that's my king. And then Christ shows up, that's the one, this is my son, this is my king. And now, in First Samuel 15, verse 13, hear this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, that's David, being anointed of Samuel. And the Spirit of the Lord did what? Came upon David. <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And with respect to Christ, we were told, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And with David, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So Samuel anointed David with the horn full of oil in the midst of his brethren. And that was not of the same level as what had happened for Saul to prove the superiority of David over Saul, of Christ over the law. For Saul, remember as I said, he was anointed by Samuel, so just the two of them, just the two of them, with a small jar of oil. For David, because they fill it up to the brim and anoint him in the midst of his brothers, of his brethren. Let us face this way. First Samuel 15. Let's go to First Samuel 15 again, verse 10 and 11. That's just made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And someone said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the ship. Why the youngest? What is so special about David? 
And being the youngest, we know David was a sinner. Because of Bathsheba, because of Uriah, he got in a lot of trouble when he numbered Israel and a lot of people were killed on account of him counting Israel. So why would go why would God go for the youngest? Let's go to Psalm eight. Psalm eight forty six. Psalm eight forty six says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. The youngest of Jesse's sons, who must succeed Saul, was David as a testimony of Christ, who was made a little lower than the angels see the connection. David is the youngest, is the most despised, and yet he is the one crowned with glory and honor to be the next king of Israel. Christ made a little lower than the angels. That's the humility of Christ. That's the condescension of Christ. And yet we see him now crowned with glory and honor because he accomplished salvation. He accomplished the destruction of the Philistines. That is gospel preaching from the Old Testament. It's glorious stuff. People can say whatever they want. They're not making things up. <laughs> it's there in the text. If you just work all the little details of it. Christ in the testimony of David and God is building the character of his man of war, of his king, of his warrior and is getting prepared to go to battle. In the next message, we're going to hear more condescending stuff towards Jesus and yet in that David shows up and he slews Goliath. Okay? That's the message. God has slewed Goliath in the matter of salvation through the death of Christ, through the representation of Christ, through your union with Christ. Anybody who conditions salvation on anything that you do does not know what they're talking about. Anyone who says salvation can be lost they are saying David lost the battle to Goliath. They are saying Christ lost the battle on Mount Calvary. They should not be in the pulpit. They don't know what they're talking about. Anybody who conditions salvation, as I said, to your doing, to your improved life, to your commitment to Jesus, to your none of those things settle the issues. The issues are only settled by the one man who came down and ended the battle for you. And he killed whatever needed to be killed, okay? God be praised for his truth. We are done.
Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words that have been spoken, the testimony of Eliab towards David. And with the New Testament revelation, we know that David was a type of Christ. And so Eliab would have been carrying the testimony of the law and the condescension of Israel towards their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opening testimony of Jonah as representing the Christ who was hidden in types and shadows and yet has been revealed in the context of salvation, in the context of the calming of the storm of God's judgment over his people. We thank you for the Christ who was raised on the cross and who signed all our papers because he justified his people from all their sins. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for all those who have listened to these messages and who shall be listening again. May you grant ears to hear. We honor you, glorify in Jesus' name. Amen.